Welcome to the Indie Matters Podcast, where we talk about the issues that matter most to Nevada. I'm Riley Snyder. Welcome to our weekly podcast. This week, Michelle Rendell's and I talk with Republican State Senator Ben Keekeffer, who's represented Carson City in South Washoe County in the state legislature since his first election in 2010. In pursuit of our mission to provide reader-supported, nonpartisan news and information, the Nevada Independent sometimes accepts sponsorships of events and the podcast. Sponsors have no input into topics or content. This episode of Indie Matters is sponsored by the Nevada Mining Association. All right, we're here with State Senator Ben Keekeffer. Senator, thank you so much for uh, taking time out of your very busy day um, and chatting with us for the Indie Matters podcast. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, of course. Um, so I'm getting flashbacks because I think we did the same interview in 2013. Well, uh, hopefully it's not the exact same interview. Hopefully so there's some updated questions yes. from then. But um, one of the things that I think a lot of people have always found very interesting about you is that you had kind of a non-traditional path to Nevada. Can you tell us a little bit about your, your background, how you ended up in this state, and how you ended up in, in your current role? Sure. I grew up just outside of Chicago and went to college in, in Chicago, went to uh, grad school downstate at the University of Illinois at Springfield, where I got a master's in a program called the Public Affairs Reporting Program. It's a journalism program at that school tailored specifically to covering state government and politics. Then went and worked as a journalist um, in Chicago for a little bit, covered the cops in Chicago, um, and eventually moved out to Nevada in 2003 to cover the Nevada legislature for the Associated Press as the AP legislative relief reporter for Brendan Riley. And that's what brought me out here. I met my wife and uh, never left, basically. I was, in, I was in Denver for about a year. So yeah, it was, uh, it was journalism originally. That's what brought me out. Um, it gave me my first exposure to the Nevada legislature, which I thought was fascinating. It was during the uh, 2003 big tax debate with Governor Gwynn. So there was, there was a lot going on. It was fascinating. And uh, stayed in journalism for a couple years after that, uh, RGGA. Um, before finally leaving journalism and going into some PR and advertising, went to work for Governor Gibbons as his press secretary and then communications director. And then after we parted ways, I decided to run and ended up here. So your family's from journalism, right? You have kind of a background in that? I do. My, um, both my father and grandfather uh, were both journalists. They worked for, my, my grandfather was in the old United Press. Then my dad worked for UPI for like 30 years or something like that. And I actually worked for UPI when I was in college as when we went on maternity leave and I did the swing shift doing radio briefs and stuff like that while I was in college. And I think we were so third, third, three generations of key covers working for UPI. And then my, my uncle actually worked for uh, the Memphis Commercial Appeal on my mom's side. He ended up as their um, entertainment uh, and TV critic. And then I think my grandfather actually ended up getting him that job because he was the editorial page editor of the Memphis Commercial Appeal uh, at one point as, as well. So, The listeners may not know that Riley, me, and Senator Keekeffer share a couple things in common. Among them, the fact that we all started our journalism careers essentially as the same AP temporary <laughs> legislative reporter, and we're all still here. Yeah, I always have a sweet uh, spot for when those people come through the office. <laughs> yeah, right? yeah, so I was, I was that in 2011, Riley was that in 2015, and Senator Keekeffer was that in 20, 2003. Be careful, look how far you can fall <laughs> if you follow my path. Yeah. Uh, we also share a love for Tim McGraw, as we discovered this weekend, oh, yeah, when we, we ended up at the same concert in great Reno. Show. Great show. Did, <laughs> it was a great did a great show. job. A lot of good songs. And then the other thing is that we're all in the same Senate district. So I you're our, our... As long as you're living in my district, then we're all in the same Senate district. <laughs> yeah. So Senator Kikafer, do you ever miss uh, journalism or did you ever want to stay in it? Um, you know, look, I, I believe in um, the power of good journalism, right? Mm-hmm. I, I love it. it was, it's, it's in my blood. 
but I think a lot of the a lot of the skills, right, that go into being a good reporter uh, translate really well into my job in the Senate, right? I try to ask a lot of questions. I try to think critically about issues. I try to understand complex issues really quickly in a short period of time. Um, try to listen to both sides of an issue and try to come to some sort of understanding about where different people are coming from and what's driving public policy debate. Um, the difference now is that I just get to push a button instead of churning out Five five hundred word stories in a day, or something like that. Like when I was writing AP copy. So I, I think I still get a lot of the the same sort of uh, juice that you get out of being a journalist, right? Uh, just translates in a different way. So politicians always kind of get mad at reporters inevitably over time. But inevitably, you, you have a, <laughs> a different background, right? And mm -hmm. the state of journalism in Nevada has changed like immeasurably since two thousand three when you mm -hmm. started. You talk about like kind of. What it was like then in that session, obviously historic with the, the attempted tax increase, the mean 15, all that. Mm -hmm. um, and then now where we have like a lot of newer folks, everything is obviously a lot more digital. But are there any changes that you've seen just kind of in how the press interacts with the legislature and vice versa? Well, there's, there were there were a lot more reporters here back in 2003. There was, there was much more of a full-time presence by different news agencies, um, multiple reporters for single news entities, right? So there was just, there was more critical mass of, of journalists covering state government. Um, and I think that fostered a lot more healthy competition in terms of, um, you know, beating people's stories and things like that. That was, um, I think that's somewhat of a, of a dying breed. I don't know. So that has that that was obviously a big change and then as, as you said the shift to digital you know content being pushed out via social media versus you know press conferences and stuff like that i haven't i haven't written a press release in a long time right i just i basically push try to push news out via social media um, so things change but you know i think there are still there's still quality people quality reporters covering state government in our state and you know, I might get mad at them at times, but I think I have a better sense of what they're doing. Well, if you find them, let us know because we've been looking for them for a long time. <laughs> Wanted to chat with you a little bit about some of the interesting bills that you got coming down the pike this session or, mm -hmm. or have had a hearing for. Um, two of them, at least, I know you had a hearing for. Um, one of the ones was one we talked about this week was mm -hmm. the weapons enhancement bill mm -hmm. that was probably pretty polarizing among the folks in that committee. It was. Just for folks that don't know what it was going to do is is change the weapons enhancement rule so that if there's a murder, for example, was using a gun, it would essentially match the murder sentence and the gun, the additional gun sentence. So 20 years for murder, and then that would mean 20 years for using the gun. So 40 years total. You and I talked about something interesting. It didn't make it into the article, so I wanted to have, have readers listen to it or, or listeners hear it. We talked about the prison population and how that was one of the goals, but was reducing the prison population by changing the weapons enhancement. But for you, you, you said, I kind of want this bill and this policy to really stand on its own and not be just a question of what might be better for reducing that prison population. Can you kind of give us a little bit of your thinking on those? Sure. Lines? Well, I, I think the debate around this bill and the consecutive and equal enhancement needs to be the... Um, sort of framed within the context of a lot of what we're talking about, right? I said on the Sentencing Commission during the interim, there's a lot of debate about um, the prison population 
around the narrative that there's a lot of people in our prisons who shouldn't be there, right? I, there, there are different opinions as to whether that's actually the case. Um, but there's a, you know, a large criminal justice reform bill that I think was just introduced today uh, that is, um, you know, part of the goal of that is to reduce the prison population and ensure that people who um, probably have mental health issues or drug addiction issues um, find other ways to access um, treatment so that we don't use our, our jails and our prisons as a way to warehouse people who probably deserve um, other types of, of pathways. But, you know, this bill is to sort of get the other side of that coin, right, which is, um, I think, the generally agreed upon notion that our prisons should be reserved for the, for the, for our worst offenders. And people who use deadly weapons in the commission of a crime, um, I submit, fit that definition. And um, prior to 2007, the law was that if you used a deadly weapon in commission of a crime, you would get a consecutive and equal sentence tacked on to whatever the sentence was for the underlying crime. And this is a bill that basically reinstates that, that enhancement. It was uh, labeled by some as draconian, but I think it reflects a policy that um, says we're going to actually take violent crime seriously. And if we're going to um, be serious about reducing gun violence, then people who demonstrate a willingness to commit it should be punished appropriately and severely. Um, I think that also fits into the debate regarding um, the background check bill that was passed and other gun control measures that are going to come forward. If we're going to put additional barriers in front of law-abiding gun owners, I think it makes sense to have very significant punishments for those who violate gun laws. Yeah, and it was interesting. Now, Riley's the one that monitored the whole gun background <laughs> check bill. <laughs> you know, as a Republican who, who would have voted against that background mm -hmm. check bill, I mean, what can you tell us about where do you stand on on what we need to be doing at this point to curb gun violence. Right. Well, we certainly need to continue focusing on, um, on identifying people who are threats, right? And so Senator Gansert, for example, has been the champion of the Safe, Tele Safe Voice program within schools. It's that um, sort of reporting mechanism um, within schools where students can advance concerns that they have about threats and violence. And it's been amazingly successful, and it's frightening how much or how aware kids are of dangers that are both around them and to themselves and others. And I, I know for a fact that lives have been saved because of that program, um, both from people committing self-harm and harming others. So uh, we need to continue um, down that pathway. I know Senator Gansard has a bill to continue advancing that um, and making that stronger. And, you know, when it comes to the questions of reducing gun violence, right, I think we need to be specific about what we're talking about in some ways. Are we talking about reducing suicide by guns? Are we talking about um, reducing gang crime? Are we talking about reducing mass shootings? Um, because those are different problems that stem from um, somewhat different determinants. And clearly identifying the problem we're trying to solve is something that we're not always really good at around here. So when we can do a better job identifying that, I think we'll do a better job identifying solutions. So, but some of the things that, that we are doing, particularly around mental health, I think will be a, a significant improvement. Um, you know, the governor's included in his budget more uh, money for um, the um, certified behavioral health clinics, community-based behavioral health clinics, um, pretty dramatically improving access to sort of frontline mental health services for people. Um, I think if we continue down that road, um, we're going to take dramatic steps forward.
Do you think the root of the problem is mental illness or do you think it's just access to firearms, right? Because it's sort of hand in hand. You were saying like suicides by firearm, mass shootings, all these people obviously have something wrong mentally with them, but they're able to commit these acts of violence because they have easy access to a firearm, which is a tool, but you know, it can be used in the wrong hands. So how do you balance those two things? Is there a way to balance that? Because I know you can't blame one or the other, right? You can't say it's all firearms fault and you can't say it's all mental illnesses fault, but where in those two weighing things do you, do you sort of land? Well, I, I really do think of a firearm as, a, as an instrument, as a tool, right? And it is with the intent in which it is used that um, determines sort of outcome, right? And so I, I, that's probably more the side that I err on. And But I think, you, you know, if you look at suicide rates, right, throughout the Intermountain West, right, they are incredibly higher than in other areas. And there are a lot of reasons for that, whether it's isolation, firearm access, all, all sorts of things, penetration rates for social services, things like that. So Nevada is not alone in that challenge, but uh, I think I think blaming the instrument alone is um, is a false pathway. Are there any restrictions on guns you could see yourself supporting, whether it's like a red flag law mm-hmm. or various others? I know the Governor Sisolak brought up like an assault weapons ban or high capacity mm-hmm. magazines. Doesn't look like that's getting much traction this session, but there are yeah. proposals that affect firearms. Is that where, where, where do you lie on some of those issues? Yeah, well, I, as I've always told people, right, somewhere between my little twenty-two that I used to go out and shoot cans with, right, and a nuclear weapon, there's a line, right? And the question is, as a society, where do we draw that line? Um, and I've, I I personally support where it's, where it's drawn right now. Um, you know, I wouldn't support a, um, an, an assault weapons ban or anything like that because I think it's a really poorly defined term to start with. You know, and, and things like that I just think are not tackling the root of the problem. You know, I'd be interested in seeing a red flag bill that, come, that, that comes forward. I'll, I'd certainly take a look at that because I do think the issues around mental health are, uh, are significant. And um, if we know people are dangerous, right, then um, we need to um, take steps to prevent acts of violence. Mm-hmm. And gun politics, obviously, as we saw from the background check debate, like they just draw out these like really innate raw emotions that people have on both mm-hmm. sides. Because yeah. um, it's very personal for a lot of people. You've been in the legislature for several years. Has anything in your mind changed about firearm policy over the time, whether it was the, the, you know, Governor Sisolak has talked a lot about how the mass shooting in Vegas changed kind of his perception of the issue and kind of made it, you know, real and apparent Mm -hmm. to him. We all had to cover that and kind of live with that as, um, you know, you're in the north, but you also feel that because, you know, you're a human and relate to that. But has anything changed your perception or made you think about gun issues in a different way since you came in here versus uh, now? Well, I think we've... You know, I have a hard time sort of thinking about a single incident that might reflect that. But look, the shooting that was here in Carson City and IHOP, that was in my district, right? Those are my constituents. I think the debate was really interestingly framed during the background check bill. And in some ways, I think it it didn't capture the way we need to evaluate some of these things. It's a balancing test, right? We give up certain rights. to live in a safe society, right? And the question is, how much are we willing to give up for the policy that's in front of us if we think it's gonna create a certain amount of benefit? There are some who don't believe that background checks work at all, and that, so why would they give up anything? Um, Because they're not getting anything on the other side of that ledger, and we heard that argument during the debate. You know, the bill that was in front of us, look, my constituents rejected that to the tune of about 15%, right? So um, when, they did that balancing test when they, they they looked at it and said, does it make, should I give up the right to transfer a firearm to my father-in-law 
in exchange for this level of benefit? I don't know. And they, they decided against it, and I backed them up on that. If uh, the bill that was in the legislature had been amended, like mm -hmm. with what Senator Keith Picard had done, would you have voted mm -hmm. in favor of it? I think it's Pickard, not Picard. It's not, it's not a... <laughs> Apology, Senator Pickard, if you're listening. Yeah, not a, <laughs> Joey, edit not, this not, out, not, please. Not, 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 not Star Trek <laughs> over here, right? Um, but it's okay. Uh, sorry. Like Picard, Captain Picard. I'm going to start calling him that, and that'll be fun. Um, you know, I, I, I was not going to support it. Um, I think that the bill could have been made significantly better in a lot of ways, but, you know, that, that amendment didn't quite do it for me. And again, I just, you know, I have a, you know, my constituents were pretty clear about what they wanted on this one. Moving on to a different topic, uh, you had a bill recently that had to do with textbooks and apparently... It had to do with technology. Okay, something <laughs> no, in... No, no, no. <laughs> um, so basically, Nevada requires school districts to spend a certain amount per student on textbooks, and your bill would remove that sort of number, right? And it would... It, give districts the flexibility if they could find a, a more efficient way to get curriculum into the classroom, whether that's, you know, an open source online thing or, you know, worksheets they download or something, they could use mm -hmm. that and maybe not have to spend, what was it, $121 a student a year yeah. on textbooks. How did that even come about? So it was interesting. I, that that's This is as an idea that was brought to me by um, the person who helped introduce the bill with me, Aaron Grossman. He's a teacher at Washoe County. Very, he's, he's the teacher at Roy Gom Elementary that everyone tries to get their kid into his class, right? Um, very popular teacher, 2017 Washoe County Teacher of the Year. And he came to me during the interim um, to talk about education funding issues um, generally. And um, he had this idea um, regarding the minimum expenditure requirement. We call it MER for short, right? Because that's a nice acronym. So, and, and the way it works is that you know we we have this formula based on um, a baseline year of I think 2004, and we say you need to spend your school district you have to spend this much money on textbooks, supplies, things like that. And what this bill would do would um, allow these districts to apply with the um, with the State Department of Education for a waiver of a piece of that if they got a commensurate amount of of educational materials from open source, right? OERs, Open Educational Resources, are is, is, is a growing area, right? There are uh, very high quality OERs out there that can be used by schools and teachers to uh, help educate students. And so um, it was a way to try to incentivize districts to look at the sort of emerging space within education that is generating high quality products and it simultaneously giving districts a little bit more financial flexibility to address some of their other pressing needs. So if they want to if if they were to get a million dollar MER waiver, then they could go in and invest that money back in, you know, materials for other materials for the classroom, be it technology, which is what I would hope that they would in invest it in. But if it were to offset other cuts that might be pending to, you know, uh, help them reduce class size in critical area or things like that. The Washington County School District, for example, last year reduced their um, English as a second language teachers. So if they were able to retain one of those through a MER waiver, I think that there's value to that. And we need to have consider that sort of balance. So it was um, sort of multifaceted one to try to get school districts to innovate and uh, the other to give them a little bit of financial flexibility. So I guess it was a good sign that it came up for a hearing. Um, it's always a good sign when it comes up for a hearing rather than dying in committee unheard. <laughs> um, but of course there were the argument, argument that 
you know, if, if school districts show that they could get by with less, then they're going to be given less, you know, right. by, the, by the powers that be. I mean, does this stand a chance at this point? Is it going to come up for a committee vote? I, you know, I don't know. There's some concern, um, certainly by um, Senator Dondero Loop, who has a lot of experience in this space, right? She has more experience than I do in this space, that's for sure. And she has concerns about it that I want to try to figure out ways to address. So I talked to her about that a little bit yesterday, and we're going to try to find um, hopefully some some ways to get to the root of it. But what's important to remember is that this is a year-by-year requirement, right? It's a, So it would be a year-by-year waiver process. And so districts wouldn't be able to really build this money into their base long term. It would really be to address one-time or short-term needs. Now, you're on Senate Finance. I am. There's going to be a lot of stuff coming up this year, right? (laughs) Especially with, I mean, changes to the funding formula. That's just going to be a huge thing. It is. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing something you know, in writing about that. I'm looking forward to seeing it in writing as well. (laughs) I think a lot of people are. Um, I mean, what do you anticipate is going to be kind of the big discussion as you guys get in into Senate finance? What do you see as kind of the looming challenge that you guys are going to be facing? Or or maybe there's more than one. Well, there's always more than one, (laughs) right? There's difficult because there are different subject matters that are really important to a lot of different people. And the proposal that Senators Woodhouse and Dennis are working on to revamp the K-12 funding formula is going to be a big one, right? And it's just difficult to know at this point uh, sort of the implementation timeline, the process, the rollout, the implications, all of those sorts of things uh, are sort of still on the table and I don't have answers to yet. They haven't been described to me. So um, it's a little bit of a scary place to be when the one budget item that we spend the most time talking about is subject to dramatic change and the details aren't available. So um, I'm waiting patiently uh, for them to finish their work and get it introduced. But as the clock runs on the legislative session and we're still in that holding process, um, it becomes more and more stressful for particularly those districts that are going to be impacted the most. So um, there's that one. Look, there is still um, a lot of debate about about the amount of money that's going into K-12 education as well. I had parents in here yesterday um, who were here to talk about that, right? I mean, rearranging, you know, rearranging the existing pie into different slices um, is not what some people are looking for and it's not what some people I think thought that they were going to get out of this session. There, there were some parents here particularly out of Clark County who were looking for you know a bigger pie and that doesn't seem like it's a debate that's even on the table um, by the by the majority party at this point. So eventually I assume it's going to come up but it hasn't yet. Um, I think the higher education funding um, is Going to, look, it's always it's always subject to debate, right? But they're getting a 15% general fund increase, probably the largest increase in the state as from an agency perspective. So we're going to sort of put a sharp pencil to that one, I think. Significant expansions in Medicaid money, um, but a lot of that is roll-up cost. Um, we saw that. We, we talked about some of that today. Um, reimbursement rates for hospitals um, and other Medicaid um, providers um, was going to take up a lot of oxygen. Um, so there are a lot, look, there's a lot of ways that we can spend state resources, right? Um, it's prioritizing them that always becomes the big deal. You know, as someone who lived through the 2013 session, I was not there. You were sort of there, right? Vaguely. Uh, <laughs> as much as a student a... journalist can be. <laughs> uh, but, I mean, we saw a situation where the, the huge legislation, the tax plan, didn't come until, you know, a few 
weeks before, and and right. that was kind of what killed it in my observation. <laughs> um, I, I, so we're here. We are day twenty six or something like that of this session, and, and we, we haven't oh. seen the funding formula. I mean, d does that reduce the chances that we're going to ever arrive at at a fix this session? Well, I th look, I think the longer you push things out, the more. The, well, there are two different ways to look at it. The longer you push things out, the more difficult it becomes to pass if you're going to have a really robust policy discussion. If you're going to introduce something and just push it through policy discussion, be damned, then it doesn't really matter, and sometimes it's better to have less time. I believe that Senator Dennis and Senator Woodhouse want to be thoughtful about this, but it's going to be more difficult for them when um, they introduce something that's going to be so dramatic with less time to debate it. You've had uh, several weeks now to, you know, look at the governor's proposed budget. Can you maybe just for fun name like one idea that he's had that you would support or you think is a good idea and maybe one budget uh, proposal or spending that he's put out that you would probably dislike or vote against? Yeah, so the, well, I mean, you don't get to vote against them all individually, right? They sort of come up sort of lump sum mm -hmm. um, at the end. So the... Um, um, certified Community Behavioral Health Centers that I talked about earlier. These are sort of health clinics that are mental health focused that had been prohibited under f previous federal rules from receiving Medicaid funding. We're in the, in, in the second year of a demonstration project um, through the federal government for that. And um, he's proposed um, including that in as an expanded waiver for a state demonstration project that will expand the number of those clinics that's available throughout the state. So that, which is, you know, a, a great targeted investment, leverages up federal dollars. And we heard today that it's actually bringing uh, mental health providers from out of state into Nevada um, to staff up some of these clinics. So I think that it's incredibly promising. I think it's in good hands in the Department of Health and Human Services right now. So uh, making that that type of investment, I think, is something that, that makes a lot of sense. There are certain things in, in the governor's office that I still need to understand better, right? That why the state needs to spend $5 million to do the federal government's job for them when they, it's their job to do the, the, the 2020 census. I think that's something that we can talk about. So, I mean, there are a lot of, you know, sort of little things here and there that I have concerns about and objections to. But overall, I think he's presented what is um, on the surface a fairly reasonable budget. You represent a ton of state employees, maybe more than any other district. I, I don't have a count on it, but I would think I, I would think that's probably the case, representing all of Carson City and South Washoe. Where are you at on the proposal to expand collective bargaining to state employees? Yeah, I'm against that. <laughs> I, I can expand if you want. I mean, I just um, I, I think that um, there there are a couple things, right? The protections that are in place through um, labor associations, um, I think, are actually already in place for state employees. I, I do not get concerns that a lot of state employees are mistreated or that they don't have methods to um, file complaints if there's, a, if there's a workforce issue for them. So I think a lot of those protections already exist within state um, employee systems. Um, so I don't, I don't think that's an issue that's driving it, which gets it really to a financial issue. And I believe that the flexibility that the state has to manage itself in um, bo times both good and bad is important. And I think that if legislators um, give that away now, um, while times are good, they're going to be really sorry they did when things things don't go so well. So you're not going to worry about angry constituents uh, after you vote against that bill? My position has been pretty clear on this, <laughs> this one from the start. You know, we've been doing a lot of these analyses of campaign finance spending. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, your name comes up as, as one of the top. And of course, that was 
probably a product of people thinking you were going to be the majority leader this time. Maybe. I never, I never told anybody that was going to be the case. So, <laughs> Is there anything you can tell us about why, why when a lot of people did think that you were going to be the majority leader, that it, it didn't happen this session? Well, look, in, internal caucus politics is something that um, I'm not going to talk about um, on, on your podcast. But um, as I said always, and I still believe that the Senate Republican Caucus is full of talented people who could do that job. We have two former um, Assembly Republican leaders in our caucus, and Senator Glickachia and Senator Gansert. Um, I was the assistant for several years. Um, Senator Sandelmeyer was whipped for several years. We've got good people who can do the job. So it was never really all that big of a deal. Do you miss Michael Robertson at all? <laughs> you know, Michael had his, um, has some incredible skills. And in this process, he learned to... He learned to pull the levers within this building um, in, incredibly skillfully. Um, so there are certainly things that I miss about Michael. Mm -hmm. Plus, he just made me laugh. <laughs> He's quite the character. You know, Mark Amaday has said that he would be interested if, if he gets uh, nominated for a federal judgeship. That mm -hmm. would leave CD2 open. <laughs> Have you thought about throwing your name into that hat? So, I, look, I don't rule anything out. I have, yeah, I've thought about what that looks like for me as a, um, um, as someone who really likes legislating, right? I like the legislative process, and I think that potentially um, my brand of legislating would be useful in a really, what I see from the outside as a difficult and partisan environment in Washington, D.C., I am not at all convinced that it's something I want to do um, in terms of um, family obligations and not even not family obligations, my desire to spend time with my family. <laughs> um, so, you know, look, I've thought about it. And if for some reason um, Congressman Amade decides to leave his seat, I would I would consider it. But I'm not standing around waiting for Mark Amade to vacate his seat. That's just uh, that's not what I'm now, not how I'm focusing my time or energies. You don't feel like that would, you know, be a nice segue because he represented your Senate district prior <laughs> to you. And then, you know, it makes sense thematically. Yeah, I don't see that as a prerequisite. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're uh, probably out of time right now, um, unless you wanted to ask anything else. right? Oh, now. just the flush toilet questions at the state <laughs> parks, but. I, I, I think that if you travel to the Walker River State Recreation Area, you'll be able to find yourself a flush toilet. <laughs> Well, let's refresh readers on what that is. <laughs> oh, uh, do we have to explain the joke? We do. <laughs> Let, let's know. explain it. So. <laughs> right. so, so back in 2017, when we were creating a new state recreation area, um, I wanted to ensure that um, the amenities provided at these campsites and uh, state, the new state park um, were going to be um, up to modern standards. So uh, modern standards being including flush toilets. So um, I got a little bit of a... Uh, a razzing for that effort during the last uh, closing days of the legislative session, perhaps. But um, I believe that the uh, department was able to find a way to make it work. Oh, is that right? That's, that's my understanding. Okay. I have not been there yet. So, well, um, if they don't be... have it, I believe it was Speaker Frierson that was resistant to the idea. Oh, so I, we think, can I, think he was I think he was probably not the only one, but <laughs> that's okay. You got to say, we, we went to Great Basin, and the lack of a flush toilet is very noticeable. After a while, yeah, especially uh, on holiday weekends, from yeah. what I understand, <laughs> or yeah. shutdowns, right? uh, or or, gov or government <laughs> shutdowns, right? If, if no one's there to clean up, you can get yourself into a lot of trouble real fast. Yeah, I guess just in closing, one one fun question: Do you have a favorite Tim McGraw song that he sang last week? Uh, 
Live Like You Were Dying was a pretty solid uh, closer, yeah, yeah. you know? That was... Everyone singing along. Yeah, really that was... That, that one gets you, you know? <laughs> it really does. Well, thank you so much for taking the time, Senator Keefer. It was great to chat with you. And uh, we'll see you guys next week on the Indie Matters podcast. Next time, yeah, bring me on again. We'll talk about blockchain. Oh, uh. gosh. <laughs> <laughs>